0: On today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast, I had a fun and lively conversation with William Toady, a retired Navy submarine commander who went on to become the CEO of Spartan and now helps military veterans successfully transfer out of the military and into the civilian world. We had a great chat about what it's really like to live on a submarine for months on end without any kind of daylight. Some of the leadership lessons he learned while living on that submarine, but then we really dug in around understanding what it's really like to transition out of the military into the civilian world, some of the struggles, some of the challenges, but also some of the tips to help veterans transition successfully. But even more important is how companies can hire more veterans, what are the benefits of hiring veterans, and how they can do so successfully. So keep listening. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Bill, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Darren. Great being here. So take me back in time, and I'm going to go somewhere a little different than maybe you expect. Rather than ask you about how you got into the military, I did hear there was actually a, a previous career goal about being an astronaut. Tell me about that a little bit. Being a
1: child of the 60s, and I was really a child in the 60s, I was riveted by the Apollo moon program, right? I remember sitting there. On the floor, I think I was maybe 10 years old, when Neil Armstrong took those first steps on the moon, and I was hooked. That's what I wanted to do. And I set every life's goal around becoming an astronaut. And so in when I was in high school, John Glenn, astronaut, very famous <laughs> astronaut, runs for the Senate in Ohio when I'm living in, just outside of Youngstown, Ohio at the time. And I volunteer to be on his campaign, not having any idea that he's going to come to Youngstown and I might have the chance to meet him. So I I figured I knew at the time you had to be a military test pilot, generally, or pilot to become an astronaut. So I was going to go to the Air Force Academy by God and be a pilot. And, and so I applied, got an appointment to the Air Force Academy. John Glenn shows up in town and I get to meet him because I worked so hard on his campaign. I wasn't even old enough to vote at this point. But I worked so hard on his campaign. They said, uh, "Let's uh, you could spend a couple hours with Mr. Glenn as he goes around town and things like that." And as I'm talking to him about my desire to be an astronaut, and Mr. Glenn, I've got an appointment at the Air Force Academy, and and I'm going to be a pilot just like you. And the guy probably thought he was sophisticated enough to understand that what he was about to say was a joke, but I wasn't. And so what he ends up saying is Air Force Academy don't you know I was a Marine? If you got to go to an academy, the way you become a Marine pilot is go to the Naval Academy. And I said, okay. And so I decided, okay, forget that Air Force Academy thing. I'm going to apply to the Naval Academy. The problem was all the appointments for the Naval Academy that year were gone. So what do I do? I go to the local recruiter and I enlist. As a regular sailor to prove to them how serious I was about going to the Naval Academy. It was crazy. I enlisted for six years and I remember my, in boot camp, my company commander, drill sergeant guy laughing at me every time I say, yeah, but I'm not going to be enlisted very long because I'm going to go to Annapolis next year. And <laughs> you're an idiot. And then, but it worked out. I, I applied and I got appointed to the Naval Academy the very next year. And that's how I ended up in the military. The problem was. In the intervening years, my eyes went bad, so I couldn't be a pilot, and so I ended up as a submariner until the space shuttle program began, and then the mission specialist position opened up, and I could become an astronaut again. So I applied, was appointed, get to Houston, fail the astronaut physical, specifically the eye exam. So I'm kicked out of the astronaut program before I even begin, and my life's dreams evaporate. I ended up spending the rest of my Navy career as a submariner, which didn't suck. It was a great career. And, and truthfully, I wouldn't change a
0: thing. Being a submarine operator, so I mean, obviously, I think I've come across a few folks here living in San Diego recently who's, they spend time in subs. You know, one, I think, is underneath the Arctic at different points in time. But what's it like in terms of just being in a submarine for extended periods of time? I don't think many people can actually relate to that.
1: People say, well, don't you get claustrophobic? People, submarine forces still all volunteer. And people who think they're going to be claustrophobic simply just don't volunteer for submarine duty. So I never had a problem with that aspect of it. You know, I would say years later, the business of being underwater and not seeing the sun for months at a time can affect you physically. Your, Your vitamin D level, I joke, my vitamin D level when I finally surfaced was a negative number. And that can have some effects on things like osteoporosis. We didn't understand that at the time. Now, of course, they'll supplement. They'll give you vitamin D supplements. But, you know, there were aspects of it that I absolutely loved. The the camaraderie, the crew, the the security of the mission. When I was captain of the submarine, you don't communicate with anybody. You know, and you go on these months-long mission, nobody really knows where you are. And you don't have to radio back to get permission because you can't transmit. Because if you get detected... Things can go really, really bad for you. And that's the only place in the military where that's still true. You're an 0 05 commander, lieutenant colonel equivalent, and you're on your own conducting missions for months at a time with nobody looking over your shoulder or giving you rudder orders. That's certainly not true in surface ships or aviation. Even in the infantry, it's not true. So it's almost like being in, back in the sailing days when ships would go to see for months at a time, and they couldn't communicate. That's what it's like to be in a submarine. And that's the weirdest aspect of it that I think people don't understand.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, I look at everything through the lens of leadership. It's like, what did that lead to in terms of the way that you developed communication? You talked about only communicating effectively with the people that are on the sub and not with external constituents in the military. What did that lead to from a leadership and communication perspective?
1: Well, the interesting thing about submarine crews is if a submarine sinks, it's not like a few people die. Everybody dies. So everybody is vested, invested in the success of that ship and the mission. And because of that, the entire crew down to the lowest level seaman is empowered to speak up anytime they see something wrong. And as captain, you've got to listen. If somebody knows something's wrong, They need to feel empowered to come to you and tell you about it so you can keep a really, really bad thing from happening. Again, that's another aspect of being on a submarine that's very unique. And and as I rode other ships, surface ships, and served with aviation squadrons and things like that and spent some time with folks in Iraq and Afghanistan, I did not see that kind of wholesale camaraderie Where everybody down to the lowest level enlisted person feels so invested with the outcome that I found on the submarine. So that's the positive. The negative is you can become fairly lazy as a leader and this can become counterproductive when you finally transition to industry because your crew may disagree with you on that submarine. But in final analysis, there's no place for them to go. When you make a decision as the captain of the submarine, they're all going whether they like it or not, and that can cause you to be kind of less active in your leadership style than you might, maybe you ought to be in bringing your crew along with you as you make decisions and keep making sure they feel invested in whatever decision you're making. And I've found that in some cases, the folks that transition from leadership positions like that do have a harder time transitioning to industry and modifying their leadership style to one that's more appropriate. In fact, I tell my active duty friends who are transitioning to industry, leadership is hard, but it's even harder when you're leading people who can actually quit. And when I say that, I think the light bulb comes on for most of them and they understand that they may need to adopt a new style.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually interviewing a uh, very successful executive recruiter, headhunter for my next book. And he just talked about just how just leaders over time just can't go whip back and forth when when the economy is bad and just you know they're not treating their employees the way they should and when it's when it's good now they're suddenly this servant leader they're looking at it in a different way. What you're explaining is almost an extreme example of like a, a terrible economy. They can't not only leave your team they physically can't leave the premises.
1: Absolutely, there's no you know you want to leave you can go through the hatch but it's like. 400 feet of seawater between you and the surface, and it's not going to go well for you, right?
0: Yeah, talk about a captive audience.
1: Yeah, absolutely captive.
0: So, tuck me forward a little bit further. Obviously, you had a, a long and illustrious career in the Navy, and like, what was next for you? Like, what? How did that the evolution of your career, and what did you learn about yourself along the way?
1: Yeah, so I had to make a decision at the point of my career when when I was going to transition to industry. There's obviously there's the Desire, kind of the the bait that's held out for you when you reach a certain level that you know may, maybe you're going to have an opportunity to be an admiral, and you know do you want to really want to stick around for that? I had served as commodore of a submarine squadron where I had six Los Angeles class submarines in my squadron in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and you know there's there's a good chance I would be competitive for admiral. The problem with that is once you get selected for admiral, you basically three years you're waiting. To pin it on. And then you got to stay in another three years to retire at that rank. And that means six years spent just getting the admiral thing out of the way. And I realized somehow, and I'm not sure how I knew this, if I didn't transition to industry before I was in, let's say my mid forties, I would not have a really true viable second career because I, I assumed it would take a second career would take consume about 20 years of my life. And if I was going to retire at 65, I needed to start it by like age 45 in order to to have a full second career, not just another job after the military. And so I decided to make that transition right after my commodore tour and jump into my first industry job which was with I'll say it Raytheon in a leadership development program. The interesting thing about that notion was here I was I was in my mid-40s. I had commanded what we would call a major command, which is post-05 command. And so I I thought of myself as a well-established leader at that point in my time. And when the company uh, signaled to me that they thought I should enter what they referred to as a leadership development program, my initial reaction was, you you got to be kidding me. You think I need my leadership to be developed? You don't think I have well-developed leadership skills already? I could have reacted badly to that and got a chip on my shoulder, but I decided not to. I just decided I had no idea what they really meant by this. I had no idea what it was going to really take to succeed in this second career. I'm not a captain in this new life. I'm a. I'm going to be an ensign all over again, second lieutenant equivalent, right? So these people seem willing to invest in me, maybe I ought to take them up on it. And so I made the transition into that company and it was a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful place to go. Yes, indeed, their definition of leadership was different than what I had assumed they were talking about. And what they were really talking about is creating a business vision and leading people, You know, basically aligning the vectors in synchronicity with that business vision. And that was something I did not know how to do. So the training program was great and it really ended up being the right place for me to be.
0: And what was next for you? Because obviously I know you um, talk about in your book from CEO to CEO, meaning commanding officer to CEO, like what was that journey like for you? Obviously you had the humility to accept going backwards in some sense in terms of in the civilian world and the training program, but how did you progress? What were some of the things that you had to learn? You really do start over again when you make that transition to
1: industry. And this is one of those things I I try to make sure the military folks, active duty folks, understand. When they transition out of the military, the military is going to give them what's called transition training. It's skills bridge. It's got all kinds of different names. In that training, the military really does them a disservice in that they try to make the transitioning service member feel good about where they are in life, feel good about all the service and sacrifice they've done to that date. And they try to talk up about how that service and sacrifice on active duty is going to propel them into accelerated success in their civilian careers. And the truth is, not only does it not truly propel them, it can actually serve as an anchor unless they recalibrate their brains when they begin that second career in industry. And so from my standpoint, understanding that I was starting over again was exactly the right approach to take. And I also made sure that from every job I had, I cast as wide a net as possible in learning as much as I can from each position. So for example, one of the first things I did was I'd never I didn't even know what a proposal was but the company needed somebody to lead a proposal effort for a hundreds of half a billion dollar program and I you know and so I had to uh, volunteer because I figured it was a really good experience for me to dive in deep into how a company wins a new pursuit a program that sustains them and leverages their advantages to build something really good for the military and basically I took over as a capture manager and learned how to do that then I learned how to do advanced development profit and loss and manage a group of engineers who were both writing code and designing hardware and in little baby steps and in little increments I was expanding my P&L abilities and relationship to the point where I was eventually considered for a vice president position, running a multi-billion dollar business unit. And that was within three or four years of me leaving the Navy. And again, I, I say this to my active duty friends, there was a lot of great things about being in industry, but one of them is in the Navy, you have this thing called a lineal number and you can't get promoted until your time comes, until your lineal number is there. There's no such thing in industry, and you get promoted when the company thinks you're ready and a position's available, and you could be working for them for six months or six years or never get promoted, but it's it's all up to you.
0: So tell me a little bit, what you talked about, to me, I'll call it lifelong learning. I believe you called it an eager student's mindset in your book, but what were some of the other skills that allowed you to have such a rapid ascent? So four years from leaving the military into, I think, what you said, being a VP of a, a multi-billion dollar business unit. Like, What were some of the other things that helped you ascend, not just in those four years, but even to becoming a CEO of a very large company?
1: When I first transitioned, my inclination was to go try to seek counsel and advice from other veterans who had transitioned, and then I started realizing that, you know, these people I'm asking for advice from aren't where I want to be. They're kind of <laughs> also kind of at the same level I am. Maybe I ought to be talking to people who are where I want to be rather than people who are striving to get there like I am. And so I started, I realigned my focus of who I sought mentorship from. What that really meant was, because there weren't any veterans at, at levels operating at the levels I wanted to be, I started seeking advice almost entirely from non-vets who were. who had been in industry a long time and, and were at that level. And it took me a while to get them to break down the barriers that I think existed from their point of view, on what they felt comfortable telling me and what they didn't feel comfortable telling me. So for example, a lot of non-vets have a hard time telling a served senior leader like I was, a military leader like I was, you know what, your leadership style probably needs some modification if you want to succeed here, because they, they don't presume, they won't presume to tell you how to be a leader, because they think you've led larger organizations than they're leading currently, right? Um So it took me a while to work, break down those kinds of barriers. Then there were other barriers. There were stereotype barriers that they didn't want to admit having those stereotypes like, well, you'll never really understand the business success principles because heck it took me 10, 15 years in industry to figure it out myself. How do you think you're going to be able to figure out in three or four how arrogant of you to presume you can. And, and I had to start working at that and say, yeah, but you know what? I've got a lot of other like, point one, I've got a lot of other life skills. I've, I've kind of sussed out during my 26 years on active duty that may give me a leg up. And number two, you forget that I changed jobs in the military every two to three years and had to learn how to do something new every time, basically start from scratch, every two to three years. So this isn't unusual for me. And so give me a chance. Help me understand what it is I don't know and where I should spend my focus. And maybe I can really start accelerating that learning. And the third thing I did was take advantage of every learning opportunity I could get my hands on. The company had a bunch of online courses, mostly ignored by the majority of the, of the employment employee population, I didn't ignore them. I started the very fundamentals and burned my way through them on my own time to try to catch up. And then you know they offered to send me to finance basics school. And I thought, well, I have a nearly completed MBA. What do I need to do that for? And it turns out there was a lot I didn't know about finance and and how P&L and cash management and things like that go. And then I eventually took a course at Harvard Business School. And then it was just grind, you know, every day, go into work, make it happen, prove results, be successful, hit it out of the park as often as I could. And then the headhunters started calling, right? Once you develop a certain degree of reputation, like you said, the headhunters get interested and they would call and I would get a call a month almost. There was a period of time where I would, and and they would say, Hey, Bill, are you interested in doing something like this. And most of the time, the answer was no, because it wasn't better than what I was doing. And I didn't want to be these one, got one of these guys that hopped from company to company to company. But occasionally, every few years, the answer, the, the opportunity intrigued me. If it was a kind of opportunity that would expand my business base and my portfolio of understanding, I wasn't afraid to jump companies. And I think that helped as well because I, I got to see product companies. I, I was an executive in service companies. I was an executive in commercial companies, Hewlett-Packard, when they were $110 billion year, year revenue company, uh, and how commercial companies to go to market. And it really helped, I think, round out my understanding and d- develop as a business leader.
0: You provided just a, a litany of examples and tactics. I and mean, you talk about just the importance of mentorship and getting advice. And I like how hey, you... you reach out to people that were outside of the military and in the civilian world. I think the same thing applies if you are in the civilian world, reach out to people in adjacent industries or maybe very different industries. But also you talked about not talking to people who are in your same station in life, but actually people who are one, two, three, ten 10 steps ahead of you. I try to do the same with you know my life in terms of finding mentors who are a little bit ahead or far ahead of where I am, whatever I'm trying to achieve. And then I love what you talk about in terms of looking at new opportunities that expanded your base of business understanding? Because so many people, I think, make the mistake of chasing the dollar, chasing the title. They lean into the ego. Obviously, to be able to do what you said obviously exemplifies your, the amount of humility that you have. But what a great example of, of looking for roles that really expand your understanding of business and not just actually chasing the, you know, the accolades and the, and the money, frankly.
1: Yeah, and Darren, every time I moved, I wasn't looking for a new job. I guess the big lateral move I made was VP at Raytheon to VP at Hewlett Packard. P and L was in the under $2 billion level for both jobs. And that and was lateral. And the reason I did that was it was in IT, right? That was not a skill I had developed to that point, And I was thinking that IT is the future. It was a very large commercial company in the business unit that had formerly been EDS. HP had acquired EDS, and my business area was the largest business area in the company that used to be a EDS, the one I was being hired into. And I was intrigued by the notion of being the largest business area in a fully commercial company. And over the time I was there, within the first year I was there, we actually went through three CEOs, and the third of three was Meg Whitman, who's, who's well-known Globally, she had just run for governor of California unsuccessfully. She was a pro-defense leader, and I ran the biggest pro-defense. I ran the biggest defense business in Hewlett Packard. She kind of took me under her wing and became a kind of a mentor of sorts, not directly, but I learned so much from that experience. Never realizing that that would happen, right? Is one of those serendipitous things that happens to you that you can't plan for. And, and, you know, I thought I was moving laterally to expand my understanding of industry and the commercial business world as opposed to the defense business world. I had no idea that I would also great learn and work closely with this great business leader. And so that was a wonderful experience for me too.
0: Yeah, what a just a, a fascinating career journey. And just, you, you mentioned so many great companies and roles and experiences. And then frankly, just the right mindset to, to grow and develop. I'd love to shift gears a little bit here. I know the big focus in your career now, you wrote a book about it, is around military transitioning. What is the biggest misconception that people have in terms of military folks transitioning into the civilian world? I think a lot of people assume, oh, there's tons of job opportunities. Oh, it's a seamless transition because they have a, a title. They've had quote unquote leadership. But What's the biggest misconception that people have about that transition process?
1: The first point I'm going to make, I tell to both the transitioning military and companies alike, and that is that I call it the great lie, is the way I referred to it in in my book. In the 15-year journey I had in industry leading to my position as CEO of Spartan Corporation, I heard this great lie over and over and over again, because it was told to me when I was first transitioning out of the Navy. And that lie is, you military people have great leadership experience All your future employer wants from you is good leadership. And I believed it. I wanted to believe it because I knew I had it, right? Or I thought I had it. And so the reason that that idea is so destructive is because that is absolutely not all all your future employer wants from you. And in fact, if you gave it 20 seconds of thought, you would realize that's not even true in the military. If all you needed was good leadership, then you could take a B-52 wing commander, put him on a submarine as captain, and he would do just fine. And of course, that's not true. You absolutely have to know something about the organization, the systems, the processes, the people that you're leading in order to be a good leader. And good leadership by itself doesn't give you any of that. So that's the great lie. The second thing I tell mostly just to veterans, not to the companies is that there are a lot of positions they're afraid of putting a veteran in. And in that regard, it's very likely you're not going to get a fair shake because they're going to think you're going to carry too much, I will call it military baggage as you transition into that role. And they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with retraining you you know, on how to think like a civilian or think like a business person or recalibrate your leadership technique. They want somebody who could step into that pretty much directly, and because of that, they they're going to probably default to hiring another business person in that role. But over the years, I've heard many business people say to me, "Why wasn't I considered for that job?" And I have to say to them, "Because, yeah, you know, your peers at your age, people who've been in the workplace." The same amount of time you have, let's say you were in the military for 20 years, your peers have 20 years of business experience that you do not have. And that company is going to consider that as a deficiency for you. And you're going to have to overcome that deficiency. There's ways you can do it. It won't happen immediately. You have to go into your job search program with your eyes wide open and understand that they're not going to open every opportunity to you.
0: What do you say are the solutions to those three big issues? Obviously, you know, obviously a lack of the, the right training, the afraid of putting vets in certain positions. Like what advice did you have to, to veterans or frankly to organizations, but how to overcome some of those hurdles?
1: Well, one of the things I tell the veterans is rather than, it's, it's important that they highlight their leadership experience, but it's also important that they do it in a way that, that demonstrates their leadership adaptability and not just cookie cutter, boom, 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 you know, infantry battalion, infantry brigade, and so on and so forth, where they just, all those jobs look like each other. That's point number one. Point number two is a company who understands that veterans aren't going to be able to step into a role immediately and hit it out of the park. There's going to be some development required, What they want to see in their veteran employees, their new hires, is something I refer to in the book as an informed passion to learn. Informed because that veteran has a lot of real-world, real-life experience the company will want to leverage when they hire them. Passion because the company wants to hire people with fire in their belly. They don't want to hire veterans who think, okay, now – Take it easy in a civilian job. My life's not going to suck anymore. They want people who are going to work hard, who we we say in the military, can embrace the suck. And that's what passion really means, a fire in the belly. And the third part is to learn. They want to hire people because they know they're not going to know everything on day one they need to know to succeed in their new job. They want to hire people who have a proven track record of learning how to do new jobs over and over and over again, because that's exactly what they're going to do when they get hired. And so that's one of the things I tell people. That's the solution to the problem that I've been describing.
0: Obviously, you highlighted a bunch of hurdles that uh, veterans face as also organizations face, just in terms of investing into the development of veterans when they come into their organizations. But what are some of the benefits that companies can gain from hiring veterans? Obviously, you know, I spoke before we recorded this. I've worked with helping transitioning veterans lay in jobs in the civilian worlds. So obviously, you and I both know the benefits, but what are the benefits that companies can be seeking out in terms of hiring veterans?
1: The company will never get a more loyal, dedicated employee than they will from that veteran. That's point number one. Point number two, that veteran has likely gone through a great deal of hardship on their active duty time, and there's almost nothing you can do to them in their civilian job that's going to you know, give them pause. And so that's, that's another thing where you aren't going to get the whiny, you know, entitled person if you, when you hire that veteran. Number three, you will be surprised how quickly they learn and accelerate to the point where they're pretty much neck and neck with all those people that they're, they're peers who haven't served. They will learn much more quickly because they've developed The skill of learning to succeed in prior uh, active duty assignments. They're going to be wonderful employees. Having said that, and this is what I tell companies, you can't simply throw them in the deep end and expect them to know how to swim. You need to develop a program that acknowledges the deficiencies, the real deficiencies the veteran is going to come to you with. And that's why I encourage employers, HR, training people, and managers and leaders to read my book because it's like listening into a conversation between two veterans, one who's succeeded in business, trying to counsel one who wishes to succeed in business. My friends who are never served industry leaders have told me they gained a great deal of insight from reading the book and understanding what it was they needed to do, not just to thank the veteran for their service, but to actually do something that's going to be meaningfully important in helping that veteran succeed.
0: I mean, you use the veterans as an example of just the necessary support structures that companies need to commit to. But the same thing applies just with just the regular employee, right? It's it's putting structures, committing to developing people. Yes, of course. Can you get them out of a top MBA program or someone who works for Google or one of the the large reputable companies and they can plug and play into his position? But long-term, whether they're veterans or not, I mean, the best companies are the ones that actually invest in their people and continue to develop them over time.
1: That's the irony of it. Every company has a training program and every company can tell you how many veterans they have hired. They're very proud about the number of veterans they hire. When I ask them, okay, how many of those veterans that you hired are still with you after five years. You crickets, right? Because they don't track that. And the truth is, on average, a veteran will last less than two years with their first employer because there's this, what I call in the book, impedance mismatch. There's a failure to come to terms with what the company expects being aligned with what the veteran expects. And so that impedance mismatch causes either the company to say, "Eh, you know what, this isn't working out because they threw them in the deep end, or cause the veteran to say, I'm not comfortable here. This isn't what I thought it would be. And they leave. If they gave a little bit of thought to how to close the gap and conduct training for the veteran equivalent to the training that they conduct for, like you said, the transitioning MBA or somebody like that, they would increase their success rate from 30% to 80%. But it does require some thought.
0: Well, Bill, I know you're a really busy guy these days. Where can people go to find out more about your book, maybe pick it up to buy a copy th- for themselves?
1: Well, the book is available everywhere. You know, you would expect Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, things like that. It's available on ebook, on Kindle, Apple Books, and on audiobook and Audible and, and uh, Apple Books, Apple audiobooks. So that's available anywhere. If you want to reach out to me, my website is williamtoti, spelled T-O-T-I.com. I respond to all my emails. So don't be afraid to reach out. I'm happy to help. Fantastic.
0: Well, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Darren. It's been a pleasure.